Starting route to junction. In three quarters of a mile, turn right onto Spur 327 Frontage Road. We started the five and a half hour drive to junction around two o'clock in the afternoon. I recruited my husband Drew to participate in this particular adventure for Fearless. Between listening to various podcasts, Spotify playlists, and a Harry Potter audiobook, we watched the scenery change from the vast openness of West Texas to the lush, green, wildflower, and tree-filled hill country. I think we're going to turn left on Flat Rock Lane. This will open the gate and it closes behind you. We took our time getting there, and when we arrive, the sun is just starting to dip below the high tree line, and the sky is a washed out blue with early tinges of pink and orange. The entrance to the Texas Tech Center at Junction is memorable. An enormous gate swings open into a long paved road guiding you into the campus. We pass by the Tech House and the Hummingbird House, and there are these red tin roof bunkhouses with green canvas window covers placed across the property in pairs. I'm starting to get major parent trap vibes at this point. I mean, this looks and feels like a place that preteen Taylor would want to spend for summer camp. At last, we arrive at the Hums House. We'll spend the next three days here. Welcome to the Hums House. Please use this checklist to ensure that your stay is comfortable and successful. It stands for the Home Utility Management System. It's a house that's designed to operate with the grid using clean energy. With a water collection system that funnels rainwater into a large silver tank out back, solar panels, and a wind turbine. This smart house is expertly engineered. It can tell you everything that you could possibly need to know about your energy and water usage. How? Well, we're going to tell you on this episode of Fearless. From Texas Tech University, we bring you Fearless, a podcast featuring the untold stories of the school we love so dearly. In this episode, we're pushing the boundaries of research, investigating more about people, the human mind, and experience. And we're meeting the ones that are driven by those discoveries. Do you have a favorite song? One that always seems to brighten your day? Maybe it's something softer and soulful. Or how about a bit more upbeat and fun? Either way, it's been proven that music holds a lot of power, aside from just lightening your mood. It can do remarkable things, like provide clinical and cognitive healing. There's evidence to support that music therapy can help with cardiac conditions, depression, substance abuse, and even Alzheimer's. But it can also help lower blood pressure, enhance communication skills, and improve memory. In 2019, a group of professors on campus came together to push music a bit further, to figure out if memorizing music could also have an impact. My name is Gregory Brooks. I am an associate professor of music at the School of Music at Texas Tech University. And uh, my instrument is the voice. To get to Gregory Brooks's office inside the School of Music, you walk through a corridor lined with professors' offices and past the pod of practice rooms. We're early. And while we're waiting for him to arrive, I'm enjoying the sounds of students rehearsing. When he meets us, we take a seat in his office, laden with music books and stands, along with a pristine black polished piano in the corner. While he's not teaching, he loves to perform. It awakens him in a way that only other performers can appreciate. 
but he's also curious, and he asks a lot of really good questions. Our creative activity doesn't just have to be performance. You know, we can, we can ask questions about performance and try and figure those out intellectually, and that's kind of what led to, you know, the research that we did with the fMRI. The fMRI is why we're here today. I had been interested in memory, especially as it pertains to singing, because singers are expected to memorize a lot of music. Um, if you perform a recital, the music is expected to be memorized. So what they did was got a group of volunteers. Some knew music and others didn't. And they attempted to have them memorize songs in English and others in a language that was made up. Memorization is a process that a lot of singers really dislike, but yet it's, it's incredibly necessary to do for the art form. You really can't embody the character properly if it's not memorized. And so I reached out to Tyler. That's Tyler Davis. He's an associate psychology. professor of psychological uh, science. He was part of this project too. Again, and he said, well, Carla Cash has already reached out to me and we're already in the process of putting together this proposal. Why don't you put something together, you know, in terms of voice and we'll, we'll put it into, uh, into the larger study. And we were lucky enough that it, it caught people's interest and uh, we were funded because it's very expensive to do fMRI work, very expensive. I mean, Tyler and Carla and you, like, what, what was the question that you were asking? What were you looking for the answer to? For me, the way we designed the, the singing study was, uh, you know, we had three different songs that we gave the participants to learn. And I wanted to get at learning a piece of music with a language that you know the meaning to, that language, versus learning a piece of music uh, with a language that you don't know the meaning to. See, for Gregory, his students often learn opera in German or French or Russian even. So he wanted to be able to calculate how much harder it was for them to learn a material in a language that they don't know the meaning to. And beyond that, does learning content in a different language that someone doesn't understand make a person less connected to the piece? Ultimately, what this research attempts to do is gain information to better design music therapy, to make it even more effective for even more people. Francisco Ortega and Jorgelina Orfea are waiting to greet us inside the lobby at the School of Art. They're both friendly and excited about getting to share what they're working on. We're escorted down a brick stairwell to the basement level of the building. Francisco pulls out a small gold key, a click, and a heavy wooden door swings open to reveal the stop animation lab. Inside, nearly a dozen stations are set up and eagerly waiting to be used. You see, what's amazing about their work is they say there's only one place in the world that's conducting research about the effectiveness of stop-motion animation as a therapeutic tool, and it's the room that we're standing in right now. Yes, my name is Jorge Linor Fila. I am a PhD in art history. And Francisco Ortega Grimaldo. I'm a graphic designer, and I worked at UTEP for many years before coming over here to get a PhD. When I asked the first question to Jorgelina, she and Francisco spoke passionately for more than an hour. Stories and experiences, their hopes for this program, it all just came spilling out. And it was amazing to watch them ignite a fire in one another. They've partnered with scholars and specialists to work with underrepresented or disadvantaged groups using stop-motion animation. So one of the things that we have uh, discovered talking to the specialists is when someone is in therapy, one of the hardest points is 
they stop talking or they don't know what to talk about. They don't know how to follow up their personal stories. And the moment you get stuck, it's just months or years and years of nothing because there's no progression. The stop motion animation workshops are designed to create a space for people to continue their stories, to take ownership of them and share them in a way that's unique and different, in a way that's active. Finally, they tell the story again when they're animating. So it's so many levels that they're more invested in the creation of the object, but at the same time, they're open up and telling a personal story. So when you talk about these workshops, are these, is this more of an individualized experience, or is this when you talk about putting them in groups? Is that groups. just on their experience? Oh, this is, this is groups. It's all groups. Yeah. Groups that have a certain thing in common. Could be age, mm-hmm. could be addiction. The, the situation. Could be mm-hmm. the situation, could be whatever. They took the workshops into schools, Lubbock's Juvenile Justice Center, and on campus at the Burkhart Center for Autism Research and Education, and the Collegiate Recovery Center. It's still being used today at the CRC, led by Lauren Lewis. I'm Lauren Lewis. I am a PhD student here at Texas Tech University, and I'm studying addiction and recovery. I just want to know how to get people into recovery from addiction and keep them there as long as possible. They have to create the thing, draw and create the sculptures and filmmaking, but also storytelling. They have fun, they bring music, but it's very personal. She basically just introduced the project as like this really creative way for people to explore their recovery stories in animation. And the fact that we can do it on campus with people who already like know what they're doing just blew my mind. And then in the process we start, keep telling them, remember, it's gonna get to the point that you need to tell your own story. Doesn't matter what the story is, as long as they're part of the narrative. And so I automatically was like, yes, I don't even care. I'll I'll do it, I'm in. And so in the fall of 2022, I started with our second group and I specifically helped with CRC students. So students who are in recovery from addiction at Texas Tech. Some of the stories are heavy, like the ones from Lauren's group. There's one where the creator drew all of his scenes, tells a story of searching, of darkness and wandering, then a low point, and finally the light. The ending shows him sitting in a room of people and finally feeling found. It's a full progression of life that I'm sure took more than 100 hours of work, showcased in this minute and a half long video. This is my story. My problems are not greater nor lesser than anybody else. But other projects are a bit lighter, like this one. The spaghetti experience. Uh, There's another kid that he explains how he makes um, spaghetti. And then in the process, he realizes that he doesn't know how to make spaghetti, so he needs to call his mom. Because I have no idea how to cook spaghetti. The program has only existed in its current form since 2019. That year, they hosted 33 individuals from 11 different countries for a conference about stop animation and public engagement. They were picking up momentum until, well, you guessed it, the global pandemic sidelined their workshops and their research. But things have picked up a lot since then. There's a long list of groups that Jorgelina and Francisco plan to reach out to. Children in foster care, veterans, students in med school. They want to continue work with the Lubbock Juvenile Justice Center, students with autism, and recovering addicts. A lot of people in recovery tell their story quite frequently, but our participants all said, like, telling your story is one thing, but to actively see it 
is just an entirely different experience. And so it was a lot more powerful, I think, even than I anticipated. It's not what the story is about, it's what happens during the creation of the animation. It's a brisk February morning, and Allison and I are speed walking to the Burkhart Center. In the last story, we talked about research conducted on campus involving students at the Burkhart. But this center conducts a lot of research of its own. The Burkhart Center's mission statement is clear. Increase the quality of life for individuals with autism and their families. And they do that by providing services, preparing educators, and conducting research. Jennifer Hamrick is the co-director for the center. Her heart is stirred for research about autism, not only pushing the depths of understanding, but finding better ways to serve students and their parents. Oh, this whole page of <laughs> I was like, she holds up a printed Excel spreadsheet that she's been using as a reference. There's probably dozens of names and projects listed here. Yeah, there's probably about 20 on here. Mm-hmm. Okay, so 20. On each line is a name of a graduate student and his or her specific autism-related research. We've got one really awesome uh, research study that's happening in Transition Academy right now. So again, that's our program that's for adults with autism and other developmental disabilities who are focusing on being as independent as they possibly can be. This recent cohort of students that we have, we've had several students in the program that have indicated a desire to get married, have kids, have their own family. The staff is keyed in on this. They've identified a possible opportunity for growth, and they're investing the time and energy to investigate. What we did was we started off with just giving the individuals who wanted to participate the babies. So they have the babies, just what's called baseline. These are basically the same babies that you may see students use as training tools in high school. We're not teaching them any skills. We just want to see what their parenting skills look like without any intervention. And these babies are so high-tech that they track basic handling skills. And so thinking about like an infant or a newborn, you have to hold their neck. You know, that's something that it tracks. It tracks if the baby gets left in the car, if you have the baby dressed for the temperature correctly. There's so much data that's taken. Do they come into your office and that's how it works? What I do is I play the demo and then I model for them. This is Katie Wheeler. She's a graduate student conducting research for the Burkhart. And then I play the demo again and they do the rehearsal and I give them feedback and we just practice until they get 100% of the steps correct. And then when we're doing it in real life, we have a mock apartment downstairs. And so they actually, I can just program them from here, take the baby downstairs, and they take care of it in the apartment. Our goal initially with kind of generalization is them to be able to take the baby home for two days and see if they can still do it without kind of that coaching and feedback happening at the center. So that's one of the ones that I know Janice has been super excited about it. That's co-director Janice Magnus she's talking about. She led the Transition Academy. Now, I would be remiss to mention the Transition Academy and not introduce you to Janice. She is truly the heart, the soul, and the spirit of that program. And she has been since it began in 2005. She retired this past June after a career spent giving to students with disabilities. Okay, back to the babies. Um, I think one of the things that happens with individuals with disabilities in the school setting is... People don't want to talk about like sexuality and parenting because it's, first of all, a lot of people are just uncomfortable talking about it in general with anyone. And so then trying to teach someone, 
you know, with a disability, that they're just as capable of being a parent as well. And we want to make sure that we're addressing that topic and, and working with them to help them meet a, a desire and a goal that they have. You know, so if they truly want to have kids, okay, let's talk about what that looks like and get you ready for that if that's truly a direction that you want to go in your life. Jennifer and her team are adamant that students with disabilities deserve all the life experiences their peers have. They deserve the college experience, to have a job they love or to live on their own and pursue relationships. And her team does whatever it takes to create that life for these students. We pick up where we left off at the beginning of this episode. Check that the water treatment system is on. The Hums House. You have water that is safe to drink. It sits near the edge of the property, the back porch facing trees and fields where deer are grazing. Building this home took years of planning, lots of conversations and coordinating by a team sitting in rooms like the one that I'm in right now with Brian Ansell and Carol Lindquist. Uh, I'm Brian Ansell, Associate Professor of Atmospheric Science. I'm an Assistant Professor of Practice in Sociology. Brian, Carol, and their team are really proud of this project, and rightfully so. By the way, when Brian talks, you may hear his hands on the table or the mic. Their partnership on this project is interesting to me. How they came to collaborate on this interdisciplinary study coming from what are very different areas of research. But after many of my probing questions, it started to make a lot of sense. Where the, how was the Hums House born, I guess? I mean, where did this idea sort of come from? Was it something that was presented to you or was this something that you sort of? Yeah, I guess, um, and I'm gonna get this wrong, but it was years, was it five or six years ago now, roughly? Close to six. Okay, so about six years ago. (laughs) So six or seven years ago, Carol was perfectly happy doing what she does, studying the sociology of food. Now I know I'm giving you a lot of background here, but it's really important to see all the pieces to get the fullest understanding of how this all came to be. One of the things about food in particular is that it takes place in a given spot. So in my dissertation work, I had to study place as well as process. And in so doing, I got to be pretty familiar with domestic arrangements, space arrangements, and how they affect what people do. In Brian's research, well, it has nothing to do with food. He's focused on weather forecasts, and I'll explain in a minute how these two are connected. So much of this house's effectiveness has to do with weather, how much rain the water tank holds, or wind the turbine can use. It really boils down to um, chaos, chaos and weather forecasting. So I'm trying to understand that process, and, um, and that's really my, my love on the Hums Project is a, a good idea of how forecasts can be used to plan for um, how much uh, water or power you might get at, at a residence. I think of the Hums House as being like two projects in one, formed by disciplines in engineering, atmospheric science, and social science. There's the actual engineering and building of the home elements. But what could have the largest impact is the second part of this study, the human response. How can this smart house train us to become better stewards of our energy and water consumption? Brian, Carol, and other members of their team are not solely focused on creating a product. They're hoping to change our habits through understanding. 
just being in here to, to like use less water. This is my husband, Drew. You know, or like being more just aware of like turning off lights and lamps, you know, going in and out of rooms. The whole place is, is monitored like crazy. Every faucet has a little flow meter on it. So, so we're collecting data on the amount of water that goes through every faucet, the dishwasher, washing machine. So the system has to have that data. This is what's really unique. The HUMS interface system is a computer. So when you log in, you get suggestions for water and energy use. And that's why this depends on people so much because this whole system is interactive. It, it tells people, um, it gives suggestions on how to conserve that resource. We're not gonna get rain for five days and you really only have three days of water at current consumption levels. So we're gonna, you know, the, the system will suggest maybe you could take a shower every other day. Maybe you could do the dishes by hand, which uses less water. Maybe you could not wash clothes every three days and stretch it to a week. You know, I think you have enough underwear kind of thing. <laughs> the concept is there. The technology is there. The final step is to have the four formal testing periods of six months each. Carol says that six months allows them to test within the changing seasons. That'll give us answers and, and ways in which this can be easily, more easily adapted to other parts of the country because we think it has quite a range of possibility there. Our research design to the IRB had been approved um, to have pairs, basically, of people, either an affectionate relationship of some kind or else longtime roommates, people who've been established as housemates, basically. Not roommates, necessarily. Housemates. Brian and Carol are doing something a lot bigger than a quick fix. It's getting to the root of it all, empowering people to make the changes. First in their own homes, then in their neighborhoods, and beyond. The whole purpose is to help people understand more about the impact of their energy use and give them the information to create positive change. That is big picture. Um, Sheets on the bed. Right. The storage tank is full of water from all the rain that's been happening there. Um, solar panels are all there. Everything everything works. You're saying that we, we can move in there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yes, actually. I mean, yeah, yeah you, you could, actually. You could. <laughs> you, you'll have to do the laundry as you leave. <laughs> you know what? I think I could handle it. What I've learned during this whole experience is application. My home may not have the assets that the Hums House provides, but I still took something from this experience. In just a few short days staying there, we created our own internal monitoring system that we've applied in our home, which is the purpose of the Hums House to begin with. Drew actually sums this up pretty well. When we get home, I mean, obviously we don't have, you know, a wind turbine in our backyard. We don't have solar panels on the roof, but I think that this kind of challenges me to think kind of a little bit more outside the box or, or really not outside the box, but just more basic, you know, taking a shorter shower, you know, and um, just being um, just mindful of leaving lights on if we don't have to um, and just finding different ways to save water or energy um, just in the simplest, simplest forms possible, you know, just because we might not have all the equipment yet um, or things like that. There's still um, there's still stuff we could do around the house to, to help save energy and water. Next time on Fearless. In a warmed world, <laughs> the equator's warming some, the poles are warming a lot. How do we stop getting these issues of science and policy so politically entangled? Does a thermometer give us a different answer depending on if we're liberal or conservative? Of course not. Fear is what motivates me in a way, yeah. 
Fearless is hosted and written by me, Taylor Peters, and co-produced by Allison Hearth. Thomas Boyd does our sound design and edits this podcast. We've had special help from the Office of Research and Innovation for this season. Fearless is a Texas Tech production. From here, it's possible. Hey guys, it's Taylor. Thank you so much for listening to Fearless. Don't forget to like, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.